Again, good morning. So if you've got your Bible, your phone, whatever it is that has God's Word upon it, uh, open it up to Luke chapter 6 this morning. Uh, our passage that we'll be looking at this morning is picking up immediately after uh, Jesus had the dispute with the Pharisees over the Sabbath and working on it and uh, healing the, the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And so uh, this is what's coming after that. Uh, this, this text is the first portion uh, of this sermon that Jesus is preaching, and it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, so much so that it's traditionally called the Sermon on the Plain, uh, because as you'll see in a bit, he's, he's coming down the mountain and onto a flat level, uh, and, and, you know, which is something we're so familiar with here in Kansas. This is more of the sermon he would have given in Kansas uh, on the plain. So uh, one of the things to understand, though, is I think that bothers people sometimes, the idea that here's the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Plain, and they're very similar, but they're not the exact same. And, and so you've got to understand that uh, even today, preachers will, will take the same sermon and preach in different locations to different people, uh, at this point in my life, I've, I've uh, preached the first 11 verses of Mark chapter 2 to maybe 8, 9, 10 different places, different sets of people. Uh, every time, very similar sermon, and yet a different sermon. Uh, so different things would come out of it. Uh, so that's why the content in our passage, uh, you'll find, is so similar to that which is in the Sermon on the Mount. Because uh, every time Jesus preached it, it was going to be a little bit different. So uh, let's just dive in. We've got a, a long passage to read. We're, we're picking up in verse 12 of chapter 6 this morning. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter. And Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of disciples and a great multitude of people from all uh, Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him, to, to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so their fathers did to the, to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we need you every moment of our life, and we need you right now as we seek to understand the passage that is unfolding before us this morning. Help us to live in, in light of these four blessings that Jesus our Lord has given for our encouragement in this life of faith. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the first thing we, we see here is that Jesus is going to make a major decision in his life. He's going to select from among his disciples. And, and by disciples, we, we mean this large group of men and women who have been learning from his teaching, who have been believing in him, trusting him in some regard. And, and from among that group, he's going to select 12 men to serve as apostles. Now, uh, apostles from this, this Greek verb, apostolo, and it, and it means to send somebody out in official capacity. It's, uh, it's someone who's been commissioned, right? Commissioned to, to carry this message on behalf of someone else, similar to the way that we see uh, official national ambassadors are sent out from one nation to another. And, and so what does Jesus do before he makes this major decision, before he selects these 12 men for this role? And we see he, he spends an extended period of, time, period of time in prayer with his heavenly father. And plain and simple, we, we learn from this, right? We, we've seen it over and over. See it again, right? That, that since prayer characterized Jesus' life and ministry, it should also characterize your and I, yours and my life and ministry as well. Make it a, a practice, a habit that before everything, anything, that we, we go to the Father in prayer. Uh, ask for wisdom, ask for discernment, for, for guidance, but, but seek his will in, in every single decision. Which brings us back to another question of these 12 men. What, what exactly made these 12 men stand out from the others in the crowd? Why, why were they chosen? You know, what, what made these 12 men qualified for this unique role? You know, it wasn't their resume, it wasn't their, their professional, it wasn't their interpersonal, it wasn't their communication skills, but it was one simple fact, the simple fact they were called by God who is sovereign. That's what qualified them here. In John 15, 16, Jesus is going to remind them later on, he's going to be speaking to his apostles and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. It's an encouragement, listen. Don't worry about all the things in, in your life, about whether you feel qualified. The very fact that God has chosen them has made them qualified for the task. I think one of the more interesting things we learn about the disciples here is that one of them is named Simon the Zealot. I've always loved that, right? Because I've always imagined it like it just means he's really passionate. You know, everyone should be like Simon the Zealot. But the, the thing is that, that zealot at this time, is, it's like a political affiliation of sorts. It's, it's not just a description of him being really excited. It's like saying Simon uh, the Socialist or Simon the Libertarian, kind of a, an extreme on, on, on one side of the spectrum. The, the, the zealots, though, were these political activists that, that absolutely objected to, to, to the Roman government. They, they opposed it extremely zealously. That's where their name comes from. And the interesting part about this is that we know that one of the other apostles is Matthew. You remember what Matthew did for a living? He worked for the Roman government. He was one of the Jews who actually worked for the government that, that he was so adamantly against. And, and so we see this, right, that they have about as much in common as a socialist and a libertarian would have in common today. And yet here they are, both chosen by the Lord to work together as apostles. They were united around Jesus and his mission to redeem his people. And it's quite beautiful, really, because whatever their views were, they, they come to a central unity around Christ. 
And this unity their, overrides their, their differences. Well, um, you know, we'll do well to imitate this and, and resolve to make our unity in Christ with true Christians more important than our differences. With his apostles now chosen, they, they then go down the mountain, right? They've been up in the mountain. They go down into the flat level area. There's a, a massive crowd there and they're gathered like we've seen over and over again because Jesus' fame has spread everywhere and they come because they want to hear him teach and because they want to be healed by him. And he does. He, he does that in amazing ways. And then in verse 20, we're told that Jesus lifted up his eyes on whom? Who's it say there? On the crowds? It's not, not the crowd. It's not everyone specifically there. It, it, you know, is it the 12 apostles only? It's not that. It says he lifted up his eyes upon his disciples. Again, those men and women who have been following him, believing in him, trusting him, the, the massive group of people. There's encouragement in this sermon for Jesus' disciples. There's encouragement for us in the sermon of Christ here as his disciples. See, these, these blessings that we read here, they're, they're not conditions upon earning an in, entrance into the kingdom of God, but rather they're blessings for those who have already received citizenship in the heavenly kingdom by faith in Christ. We also see Jesus doing here what the, what the Puritans did. They had this phrase called dividing the room, right? He's speaking specifically to disciples, but he also knows that people that aren't his disciples are there listening. And in dividing the room, as the Puritan used it, was this way of, of making clear that there's two categories of people that we can belong to. In this case, either those who are, are labeled by Christ as blessed, those who are, are redeemed by Jesus, or, or the other category, those, the, the woeful, right? Those who simply are not. It's a call for the latter to, to seek the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of God through Christ. Now, it, it might help us to, to know, to have some idea of what blessed means. It's not a word we, we tend to use very much. It, it means simply um, something like fortunate or, or happy, but it goes deeper than that. It, it's about having the favor of God. And in other words, it's like this is the good things of God. These are the important things. You, you have the best things from God. Also, this, this word woe, we, we tend to use it like a harsh condemnation. Like, woe to you, right? You, you picture it that way. That's not the idea. It's not a harsh condemnation. It's a sad observation. It comes with a, a heart of, of sadness and compassion for the people he's speaking to in this regard. It's, it's more like, oh, how terrible. It, it, it is a sadness. And as Jesus gives these blessings and these woes, he's, he's flipping on its head everything that we consider valuable in the world. You see, Jesus is teaching here that, that in his eternal kingdom, what holds value in that kingdom is quite different than the things that we think holds value. Things that we view as having value in this temporary kingdom that is life as we know it. Here's what I mean by that. Um, you, you know currency only holds value provided that the nation it belongs to actually exists. Um, for instance, did, did you know that at the time of the Civil War, or as you Southerners call it, the War of Northern Aggression, but for the sake of actual history, we'll call it the Civil War. <clears throat> uh, but during the Civil War, the, the Confederacy printed their own currency. They had money. They called them graybacks due to the, the color was... You know, grayer compared to the greenbacks. It, it was quite valuable, in fact, as the war got started. Uh, it carried a lot of value. 
But as it began to, to look as though the North, North was going to win the war, the value of that Confederate currency suddenly became worthless. People knew there was going to be no nation to back this up. There was, there was no gold to back it up. There was nothing behind it. And so suddenly this currency becomes absolutely worthless. You see, without a, a kingdom, without a, a nation, the currency is worthless. And, and Jesus is taking our natural values and he's just turning them upside down in a way that we're not expecting. He, he's saying the, the old currency, right? What you thought was valuable, it's no good. It's temporary at best. It's, it's no good. It won't exist forever. And then he says, let me, let me show you the currency of God's kingdom. It is eternal and it is supremely valuable. And you need to know what is truly valuable. And, and so then if you were to ask, you know, this question of how can I tell then if, if God is blessing my life? It's going to look very different than you might expect. We're going to take a look at these in more detail, but before we do, I, I do want to make sure we understand this, that, that the mere fact of being poor or hungry or sorrowful or hated, the mere fact of that does not mean that you are blessed, okay? This is not in a vacuum in and of itself. Uh, J.C. Ryle says it this way, he says, The poverty spoken about here is poverty accompanied by grace. The afflictions are the afflictions of the gospel. These are things that are, are, are blessing given they're happening to someone whose faith is genuinely in Christ. See, the, the same is true for the woes, right? And being rich or laughing, these aren't evidence that someone's an unbeliever, right? We, we have enough money ourselves. We laugh enough that you're, you're hoping that's not the case, right? You look through Scripture, Abraham and Job and David, right? These people were incredibly wealthy. We see Paul rejoicing in a laughter type way all the time. And so then, who is Jesus speaking to with these woes, right? Well, he's speaking to all people who are not hungry for Jesus because they're fulfilled with the joys of wealth in this world. The people that don't hunger for God because they're stuffed full with satisfied with the things of the world, whether it be humorous entertainment or, or whatever it might be. These are the same people, though, which is why it gets weird for us. It's the same people that, in general, we as a culture in the world, across the world, actually seek to be most like, right? To be like the wealthy, the ones that are, are laughing, the, the popular. And Jesus is saying here, no, nah, let me tell you where the real joy is, where the real value is. You know, if you're into baseball, these are the saber metrics of the kingdom of God. This is where the real values are. Now, you might have noticed that each blessing in your passage is, is paired with a woe. They actually go together. And we're going to look at them that way. And so we're going to look at verses 20 and 24 first. Verse 20, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Paired with verse 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And again, poverty in and of itself, that, that's not a blessing. I, I would be willing to bet that none of you have ever gone home and been like, God, just make us, make us in poverty. Make us as poor as possible. Nobody prays that way. We don't think that way. Right? It, it's not a blessing in and of itself. But for those who have Christ, you have the good thing, even if you're in poverty. You have the blessing of God. You know, they, they, they have so, so little in this world when people are in poverty. And yet the, the kingdom of theirs in, is theirs in Christ along with the treasures of the kingdom. 
You see, it's, it's tempting when we have money to just rely upon money to satisfy us. This will fix my problems. Being poor isn't fun for a Christian, but, but when that leads us to dependence upon the Lord, the, the joy, the, the closeness to God that money cannot buy, that is a precious thing. When Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, uh, Norval Gellenhuis, I can't pronounce this guy's word, Norval Gellenhuis tells us that, that Jesus is speaking to people who seek their life and happiness only or primarily in material things who do not, who do not realize their soul's need and do not acknowledge their ten- dependence upon God. In verse 24, we, we see that riches are the consolation. Wealth is called a consolation. I mean, you get that? I mean, say you enter a singing contest or something you might actually win. And the winner gets uh, an all-expense-paid vacation to the, to the Bahamas for a week. Uh, and yet the consolation, right? If you get second place, the consolation prize is you get a coupon for medium fries from McDonald's. I mean, it's, it's something, right? But it's, it's not the prize, It's not what's truly valuable. It only exists as a short-term comfort because you haven't received the real prize. If financial wealth is the consolation prize, if riches are the consolation prize, can you understand how valuable the true reward is? you understand how valuable what you have in Christ is? In other words, Christians, you, you may not have riches in this life, but the reward of salvation... The reward of eternity with Jesus, the reward of being in his family forever, that you, that you already have in Christ, you already have what's truly valuable. And the next pair of statements here in verse 21 and 25, uh, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And the idea being later. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. will be hungry later. It's a food analogy. Um, that word satisfied there is a, a food word. It's, it's translated from this Greek word, chitazo, which means to, to have so much food that you're stuffed. And I know we try to avoid that because we live in such a, a wealthy society. But in their time in the first century Israel, it was incredibly uncommon. The idea that, you know, we could eat until we're full, that was something to long for. That was a rare experience for them. And so if you're satisfied with the world as we know it, you're not going to have an appetite for God. I mean, you know that. You've experienced it yourself. When you get away from God and you're just entertained by sports or music or whatever the things are that interest you, you, you start to lose that hunger, that desire for God. But if you're hungry for God today, that, that's a great blessing, it's saying. It's like the psalmist in Psalm 63.1. Oh, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's a blessing to, to be hungry for the Lord. The, the third pair of statements, they're also in verses 21 and 25b, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Listen, he, he doesn't mean blessed are the stoic Christians, Right? Don't have this idea that somehow we're supposed to be this, this image you know, of an American Gothic, just straight-faced and uh, unentertained by anything. There's this image of just joyless disciples. You see, God made you with the emotional ability to laugh. 
to, to find things funny. God invented laughing, right? It, it's not that laughing is bad. The, the concern here is, is for people who are only silly, only shallow, who, who live for their next entertainment fix, who, who, who lack the depth to weep, those who are unable to be brokenhearted. It's about people who can't cry at the right things and always laughing at the wrong things. See, we in this life have so many reasons to rejoice. We should enjoy the good gifts of God. We should. But we also have many reasons to weep today. For now. We, we weep for sins we've committed. And for those that have been committed against us. We, we weep for the lost who need to know forgiveness and don't. Who, who now live in, in fear of their own death. Or, or live in denial of any sort of eternity. We, we weep for natural disasters. We weep for terrorism, for violence, for injustices in our society that are occurring daily, for, for surgeries that have gone awry, for the lonely child who, who longs for a family and for the couple who longs for a child. We, we weep for child abuse and abortion and battered women and infidelity and divorce. We, we weep for a culture that has rejected the Lord and has made morals and ethics merely a survey of popular opinion. And unfettered desires. We, we weep for unexpected deaths of young ones and loved ones that we miss dearly. We, we mourn because the world that we live in is undeniably broken and infested with sin. And because every single one of us contribute to that. And so we weep. But Christian, do you hear what he's saying here? We won't weep forever. We won't. We won't weep forever. One day Jesus will set all things right, make all things new, and in that day we'll rejoice with laughter. We'll rejoice with laughter like we've only tasted in the best relationships and the greatest of moments in our lives today. We'll have joy for eternity that, and never weep again. I mean, that's the greater thing he's, he's pointing us to here. Now, before we look at this last pairing of statements, I want to ask you something. Um, what is the greatest temptation of the church today? Well, what's the church most tempted to do that would be the most harmful? What do we face the strongest temptation to? I mean, really think about that. What is the greatest temptation of the church today? A few months back in a, a Table Talk devotional, I asked that question. Uh, let, me, let me try to give an answer to you or suggest an answer. The, the, the greatest temptation, not just today, but of every generation, is to compromise the truth so that we can avoid the world's hatred, so that we can fit in with the current cultural values, so we can feel normal, if you will, like we belong. You know, that, that's the temptation. That, that's how racism first found a home in the church. That's how moral disregard is, is finding a place in our current era. That's why many professing churches over the years have, have opened their doors to heresies such as universalism. That's a lot easier to tell people. You won't find it in God's word, but it's a lot easier to tell people. You know, because we don't want to be hated. We don't. We want to be loved. We don't want to be hated. And so we, 
We're tempted to accept the culture. As that table talk entry said, the, the church is often surprised to be the object of the world's scorn. And the temptation is always to change God's truth in order to be loved by the world. But, but listen to what your Lord says here in these verses, 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did the prophets. And also in verse 26, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You see, with, with these words, the disciples' lives just got flipped upside down, right? Wow. Now let's get one thing out of the way here. Because people will misunderstand this as just, you know, this is your freedom to go be a punk and be shocked, right, that people don't love you. Uh, you know, if, if you look close here, you're, you're going to see that it doesn't say, blessed are you when people hate you. There's not a period right there at the end, the, you know, the end of the statement. And it doesn't say, blessed are you when people hate you on account of being pompously obnoxious or bitterly antagonistic or piously self-righteous. It doesn't say that. It says, you're blessed if people hate you on account of the Son. Because of Jesus. That, that's what it's talking about. The Son there is, is Jesus. Uh, many Christians are often persecuted today, right? They're, they're hated not because of their Christianity, but they're, they're hated because of their lack of Christianity in the way that they're living. Now, understand, we're not seeking to have a bad reputation here. Um... In the words of 1 Timothy 3.7, in fact, you know, elders are, are to be well thought of by outsiders. But well thought of by outsiders according to God's standards, not, not some you know, relative, totally changing standard of the world. Jesus also pronounces a sorrowful woe on, on those who all people speak well of. Because that means they're, they're not staying true to the ways of the Lord. And it means that because Jesus knows that his kingdom is in complete defiance to the world. You can't, you can't please the world and the Lord. And so choose to please the Lord who created you, who saved you for, for an eternity with Him. Brothers, don't, don't try to reconcile with the world. Let, let, let it hate you for His sake as you try to reconcile the world with the Lord whom they need. In John 17, uh, 14 through 16, it's the, the high priestly prayer. This is, this is Jesus praying for his disciples. This is Jesus' prayer for us, for you as the church. And, and listen to what he says to the Father. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See, this, this is meant to give Christians in every generation encouragement to stay faithful to the Lord and to his word, no matter what changes around us culturally. It's not just hatred either, is it, right? I mean, you look at this list, Jesus gives this full picture, right? It's, it's a blessing to be excluded. That's weird, we don't like to be excluded, but he's saying it is a blessed and blessing if you are excluded on account of Jesus. If you're ostracized because of your faith. 
That, that word reviled, that idea is to be angrily criticized. When someone just goes off on you, right? Je- Jesus says, expect that. If you, if you hold to what my word says, expect that to happen. Spurned means to, to eject, technically, right? To, to drive out, to banish, to be pushed to the margins, if you will. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he, he knew suffering as a, a Christian pastor during Nazi Germany. He, he was eventually murdered by the Nazis because of his boldness in the face of the evil that they were doing. And, and he wrote this. He said, discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. The apostles, they understood that well in, in Acts. I don't know if you remember it when we were going through Acts. In Acts 5.41, uh, a few of the apostles were, were beaten. Right? They, they stand up, they talk about Jesus, and they just get beat on. You know, try to, try to picture that. You know, it's just brutally beaten because of their faith. And this is what they say. We read this in, in, in Luke 5, 41. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That is not normal behavior. That, that is a supernatural response. That is a Holy Spirit-empowered response to, to suffering in our life, whether it's from someone outside or just general suffering. But, but specifically here, the persecution aspect. Uh, brothers and sisters, we, we have got to accept that we will be persecuted for our faith. It might not look like that. It probably won't in our culture. Praise the Lord. You're not likely to get beaten. But man, you're going to feel the weight of it. You just will. Now, make it your goal to be faithful to the Lord and His Word. And, and then it's okay if, if people don't like you because of Jesus. That's okay. It's okay if you lose influence. It's okay if it makes life hard, if you're seen as weird, if you're seen as out of touch, right? That's the great insult today, right? You're, you're, you're so out of touch. Jesus is saying it's, it's not just okay, it's, it's better than okay. He's saying these are the good things. These are the good things because of the eternal perspective you've got to have in this. During a, a stressful time in the life of Charles Spurgeon, right? The Prince of, Pe- Prince of Preachers. It's hard to say that. Um, but during a stressful time, he, he, he found himself just depressed because of so much harsh criticism that was coming at him. And his wife took a big sheet of paper and she wrote out these blessings, you know, these blessings. She wrote out these woes on them in large print. And she just tacked it above his bed. She, she wanted him to see these words of God, to, to, to be just saturated by this in his mind every morning and every evening for him just to remember that, that everyone who follows Jesus can expect to face persecution in their life. That was encouragement to him. We, we, we need to give this, this passage time to think, sink in, I think. It, it's so contrary to the way we naturally think that it, you know, meditate on this. But we've got to be asking ourselves, you know, what, what, what sort of life am I, am I living? If, if I were to really think about the way I view the world and think about the world, does my value system mimic the world or, or is it align with what Jesus is laying out here? Am, am I longing to be rich, to be popular, to be liked? You know, would, would Jesus 
look upon my life and say I am, I am blessed or, or pronounced a disheartenedly woe upon my life according to the way I'm living. Right? But, but, but the reality is this. If your faith is in Christ, then, then these blessings, they're already yours. If you're not living according to them, you, you can be, you should be. They're reality. If your faith isn't in Christ, they, they can be yours. If you'll, if you'll turn to Jesus who welcomes all who will come to him. So then Jesus here was, has taken the things that, that everybody wants, right? He's taken wealth and food and abundance, entertainment. He's taken popularity. And then he just teaches this that's so contrary to our thinking. He's telling us these, these things, they're never going to satisfy you. But, but Jesus can and Jesus will. Meanwhile, in a, a fallen world still, still waiting for its full redemption, the, the blessedness of the Lord often, often looks in our life like the things that we deem terrible. Hunger, poverty, weeping, persecution. Brothers and, and sisters, sometimes we, we lose focus because we, we think that life here and now is all there is. Even as Christians, it was so easy to fall out of the eternal perspective of the world. Listen, there's nothing more certain in the world than the fact that the life you live now is short-lived and temporary. And the life that you are living in Christ now and will continue to live is a life forever. Forever. So let us, let us learn to live with the currency of the kingdom that is and the kingdom to come for all time. Let us pray. Gracious God, may we have eyes to see that this life we now live is but the prologue to the true and eternal life. We not only now live, but will live forever with Jesus our Lord. May we not lose sight of that glorious truth that when life is painful for us, But may we also not lose sight of that when life is wonderful and filled with pleasures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.